I was thinking as we were singing those songs together, and, and remember, when we sing those songs, we are ministering to one another. We worship the Lord and we minister to one another as we, as we sing together as a church. But we sing about His love um, satisfying us. And you know, His love isn't great because it satisfies us. His love satisfies because it's great. You see the difference between those two things? Those two perspectives? And His love is good. It's righteous. We might ask, why would somebody not want that? Well, in our hearts, we're prone to not want or to seek after righteousness. So that's why we don't trust Him sometimes. That's why sometimes we don't want His love. Because it's good. It's righteous. But His love is also powerful. And by God's grace, we're here today. If you know Christ as your Savior, praise God. Praise God. And that those things will help us as we, as we move into our sermon even today. So we're going to be in Genesis 24. But first, turning your Bibles to Genesis 22. We skipped a couple verses a few weeks back, and we need to go back and pick those up. Because they are there for us today. So Genesis 22, starting in verse 20. There's a little foreshadowing here in this passage. And yes, it's a genealogy. A short one, mind you. So you might be saying, really, our introduction today is a genealogy? Yes, it is. Are you excited? Verse 20. Now after these things, after the sacrifice of that ram in the place of Isaac, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, <laughs> and no, Cuz is not the third. <laughs> Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, or Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And it says there, Bethuel fathered, who does it say? Rebecca. Who is Rebecca, we might ask? Why does she seem to get her own parenthetical statement here? She hasn't been mentioned as of yet. However, it would seem quite probable the people of Israel, remember, in their 400 years of slavery, now wandering freely, but wandering in the wilderness, they might have known who Rebecca was in their history of their people. And so they're getting a little insight as to what's to come next in the story, maybe eagerly awaiting to hear the story of Isaac and Rebecca. So get your popcorn ready. A story's coming, right? Uh, these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maka. All right, that was fun. Lots of fun reading Hebrew names. And then last week, we got to hear about the death of Sarah, the mother of Isaac, and the purchase of the field at Machpelah, Hebron. And now, so this week, it's time to head into chapter 24 and officially meet Rebecca. So here we go. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. 
The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from his this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, just a couple things to point out here. Uh, first of all, the identity of this servant. Who is this servant? And I don't know if we can know this for sure, but generally speaking, whenever a man went childless, as Abraham had for so long, when he was ready to give his inheritance to someone within his household, the chief servant was going to be the one. Does that make sense? That chief servant would be then adopted and become the heir in the next generation. Do you remember who Abraham suggested to the Lord way back in Genesis 15? Eliezer of Damascus. So it's quite possible, it's quite possible that this servant who's been given the task of finding a bride now for Abraham's heir, is Eliezer, the former potential heir. Pretty amazing. It's quite possible that's the case. And if that is the case, whether he knew of Abraham's plan or not, back in Genesis 15, he certainly knew the customs. Uh, So this servant's faith, his kindness his selflessness by the grace of God is certainly put on display today as well. And then, Abraham asked this servant, and we'll just call him the servant from now on because I don't know 100% sure if it's Eliezer. Maybe somebody else took a spot later on, but so we'll call him the servant. This servant, Abraham asks him to put his hand under his thigh. What in the world does that mean? And it's because, you know, for this mission, a pinky swear would just not cut it. Not, a, not good enough. This gesture for this solemn promise was indicative of the results of seeing the promise through. What was going to happen because Isaac had a wife? What's the idea moving forward? Procreation. And so this symbol, uh, to put your hand under the thigh, it means what you might think it means in, in consideration of procreation for the future of our family, for our household. So that is the nature, in a sense, of what Abraham was asking this servant to do. And and with this promise, Abraham gives two requirements. Two requirements for the servant. Number one, Isaac's wife must come from Abraham's kindred and not from the Canaanite people. Uh, There is, as far as Abraham knows, one family that is suitable to provide a wife for Isaac and for the purposes of God. He has seen the ways and the worship of the Canaanite people. He knows they're going to be judged in the future and their land given over to his own descendants. He knows these things. And Abraham's family left Ur with him and settled in the area of Haran, at least knowing of the Lord and his call of Abraham. And they would know of the blessing very soon. They would know of it very soon. 
So, so in Abraham's perspective here, this must be where Isaac's wife comes from. Uh, now, this requires, think about this now, this requires that Isaac's wife be one of his cousins. We might think that looks a little gross. Okay, we're not going to gloss over that or act like it didn't happen. But remember, this practice was not uncommon in those days. And it wasn't illegal, even, until later on in Leviticus 18. So some 400, 500 years later is when that started to be a no-no. Okay? And Abraham is married to whom? Or was married to whom? His half-sister. Okay? So we're moving further away from that. Um, and, and we do. We think of that from a Western culture perspective, from the 2019 perspective. And um, things, were, things were different then. Okay? Things were different. So, first of all, Isaac's wife must come from Abraham's kindred and not from the Canaanites. Number two, Isaac's wife must come to the promised land. Isaac was not to leave. Okay, God had promised to Abraham and his descendants this land. And Abraham was going to do what he could to ensure his descendants were in this land. Even going so far as to relieve his servant from the oath, from the responsibility, if the woman refused to leave her family and come. It's as if Abraham says, God is going to bless your efforts, and if he doesn't, I won't have reason to hold you accountable. Which is actually a major step of faith for Abraham, and a major uh, picture of growth for Abraham, as we'll see. In these two criteria for the oath, Abraham continues to show God has worked in his heart and life, exercising great faith in how he pursues the promises of God. Remember, when a son wasn't coming, when he had been promised a son, when a son wasn't coming, when it looked like uh, God wasn't coming through in the right time, Abraham and Sarah went to a plan B to force their way into God's promises, Hagar and Ishmael. But now Abraham says, if the woman doesn't come with you, you're released from this oath. If God does what he said he's going to do now, then great. If he doesn't, don't sweat it. It's just not the right time yet. Do you see the change in Abraham? How it changes his words and his oaths and his commands? So verse 10. After that instruction, it says, Then, not days later, then, the servant took ten of his master's camel, and we'll know why later, his camels, and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia in the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside of the city by the well of water at the time of evening, when the time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, so this is the servant's prayer to God. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may, dr- may drink, and, and who shall say, drink and I'll water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. What a prayer of faith. But let's make sure that we understand what's going on here. This is not a prayer like Gideon laying out the fleece. Do you remember Gideon doing that? Gideon was told by God, 
the battle will be won, and I'm going to use you to do this. And then Gideon said, if you really mean that, and then he gave those two things, right? One of them was make the fleece wet and the ground dry and then flip-flop it the next day. Gideon was never commended for that. In reality, he was rebuked for it. So this prayer is not a Gideon-style prayer. The servant is not doubting God. He's not doing that. This, this prayer is also not asking God for a divine sign. The servant is not asking God to make a woman say a certain thing to tell him who the woman is. And, I, and this is what I mean by that. Okay? It would not be a good application of this passage for one of our young men to go to school this week and ask God something like this. Lord, I want to know who my wife is going to be. So what I'm going to do is give you a phrase. And the next girl who says that phrase, I'm going to know that you're telling me that she's going to be my wife. Okay? So, so God, here's the phrase. The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Okay? Did you get that? Great. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you might find a girl who's enthusiastic about typing during computer class, but that doesn't mean that God's promised you that she's going to be your wife. Okay? That's not what's happening here. So what was the servant doing? What exactly was he asking God to do? This servant is looking for a girl with a servant's heart. Any young lady who's willing to help the visitor and water all of these camels, which historians believe would have taken as long as two hours to complete, that kind of girl's going to have a kind servant's heart. And what Abraham's servant is actually praying then is that this this girl who comes and, and has a servant's heart, who gives evidence of that in this way, watering even the camels, God, let that one who has that kind of heart be from Abraham's family so that I can know. The servant is asking, God, please guide me towards the right kind of girl and then, and then please let her be from the right family. And God answers his prayer before he even finishes praying. God is sovereignly in control. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. Oh, you mean Rebecca from chapter 22? Yep, that Rebecca. Who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. So there's that answer to the prayer right there. She came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance and a maiden who uh, no man had known. Uh, just a quick thing, this is off of my notes, but notice that those characteristics did not lead off in this passage. Was Rebecca beautiful? Yes. Is that why he knew she was the right one? Okay, moving on. She was a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up, and then the servant ran to meet her. It was the first woman he saw, and he ran to meet her. Uh, by the way, there's going to be a lot of running and moving about quickly today, so watch for it, okay? And the servant said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when, she, when she'd finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they finish drinking. It's happening. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well. 
to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Remember, this took an hour and a half to two hours. The man gazed at her. That's a long time to gaze. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So it's not a done deal yet, remember. Uh, this, this has to be a young lady from Abraham's clan, and she has to be willing to go. He doesn't know yet who she is. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold, ten gold shekels, and, and said, uh, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend uh, the night? And she said to him, I am a daughter, I am the daughter of Bethuel. And the servant thinks to himself, Okay, the son of Milcah, yes, whom she bore to Nahor. No way! It really is happening. And she added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And then what does the servant appropriately do? The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. What humility. Not only is he not upset that he's not going to be the heir, he's thrilled that God is blessing his master. He's saying God is continuing to bless Abraham and he's answered my prayer. Verse 28 then, having, having heard this from the servant, the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. We may know Laban. He's coming a little bit later in the book, too, again. Laban's name refers back, by the way, to the family's moon worship. That's what his name is referring to. And what did Laban do? Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets, wealth, on his sister's arms, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. First things first. And he said, Laban said, Speak on. So he said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, implying here that it was a miracle. The Lord's doing miracles in the life of my master. And to him, Isaac, he, Abraham, has given all that he has. And right now, Laban might be hearing in his mind, the way we know Laban from further on, he might be thinking something along the lines of cha-ching. My master, he says, made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house. He's recounting these things. To my clan to take a wife for my son. My son, I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me, but he said to me, the Lord before whom I walked, he will, he'll send an angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house, and then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. Now as the servant continues, as the servant continues to tell his account of the story and of his mission, listen for his emphasis. 
Listen for the ways that he intends to encourage or to persuade. Who is he pointing them to? Whose will is being sought or denied in their decision? Verse 42. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if you are now prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water for your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I'll draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And then he says, before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water, her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I'll give your camel's drink also. And so I drank, and she gave me the camel's drink also. And I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethel, Nahor's son, whom Milka bore to him. So I put a ring on her nose, a bracelet's on her arms. You thought that was for her finger, didn't you? <laughs> Where was I? No jokes in there that I haven't written down. Where? 48. Thank you. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Okay, that was a lot of good reading there. What has the servant presented to the family? Who has orchestrated all of this? God. Whose sovereign hand has brought all of this about? God. The same God who called Abram out of Ur? The same God who blessed Abram with great, well, everything? He blessed him greatly, the greatest blessing of all being righteousness, his salvation. The same God who caused Sarah to conceive when she was too old to naturally do so is now providing a wife for Isaac, namely, Rebekah. And it's time to decide, family, if you're going to be on board with God's plan and will or not. So the servant says, verse 49, Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I might turn to the right hand or to the left. It just means, let me know what what I'm going to do next. Then Laban and Bethuel brother and father, answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord and we cannot speak to you bad or good as if it were up to us, they say. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he again bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. He worshiped. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank. And they spent the night there. Sounds great, right? Sounds great. Done deal. But it's not. This is Laban. Uh, The servant here has presented a situation where all they could answer was, we'll obey the Lord or we won't obey the Lord. And they choose to say the right thing. But their actions the next day will reveal their hearts and their desires. So continuing in verse 40, 54, when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. And her brother and her mother, so where's dad now? Laban and mom said, let the young woman remain with us just a while. At least 
ten days. After that, she may go. They're not asking for ten days, are they? They're saying at least ten days. And now, given what we might know about Laban and his scheming later on in Genesis, we will see him again. Remember that. We're probably right to assume that they're stalling and probably for a deceitful plan of action. Who's making this request, by the way? Laban, the brother, and the mother. Mother and brother. A mama and her mama's boy. Uh, This might also be a little foreshadowing to another mama, Rebecca, and her favorite boy, Jacob, and a little scheming that they put together later on in Genesis as well, if you remember. We'll get there eventually. Verse 56, But he, the servant, said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. God's doing this. Can you see this? Let's go. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, "Uh, Let us call the young woman and ask her. That's not normal. (laughs) They have already agreed to give her hand in marriage. And where is dad, by the way, again? But now they're leaving it up to her. This is now Rebecca's choice. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. I do. (laughs) So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, this is the family, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Look back quickly. You might be on that page or just a page back at Genesis 22, 17. This is God's blessing of Abraham with Isaac. And it says, verse 17, Surely I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That was just coincidence, wasn't it? Probably not. This is the same blessing. Rightly so. Verse 61 in in chapter 24. Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Now we know why the servant took all those camels. He was planning on bringing home God's promised blessing. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. In her way because they were headed towards her husband. Verse 62. And we're almost there. We're almost there. Good job. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy. That is the same place where God had seen and spoken to Hagar. And, and Isaac was dwelling in the Negev, the southern region of Israel. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, toward evening. So maybe he was doing his devos, a prayer walk or something. Maybe he was just out there with his own thoughts. But he's out walking in the field. And he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold... There were camels coming. I don't think he was particularly uh, interested in those camels. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, and this is significant, he doesn't say Isaac. He said, This is my master. It's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. She's ready for the wedding. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he'd done. 
And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca, and she became his wife. They, they simply consummated their marriage. No, no big party, evidently, at least yet. And it says here, he loved her. It's the first time this is mentioned in the Bible. A husband loving his wife. It doesn't mean Abraham didn't love Sarah, but it's significant that it's mentioned here. He loved her. Arranged marriages can work. <laughs> and all God's parents said, amen. <laughs> he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, with the end of this narrative, this chapter, a shift has occurred. A shift to the next generation has occurred. Whose home is Rebecca now living in? Sarah's. Sarah's place in the household, which has now been left vacant in her death, that place is now Rebecca's place. And who did the servant call Isaac? His master. Abraham started the narrative as his master, and now Isaac has received this title. So what's happening in the, in the overarching narrative of the whole book of Genesis, we're moving into a new phase. Does that make sense? We're moving now, we're on the cusp of moving out of the narrative of the life of Abraham and his generation and his household and into the generation of Isaac and Rebekah and that generation. Next week is our last week in this section of Genesis. Uh, but before we get there, let's consider a few things from what we saw today in this passage. Two major things. Uh, we're going to start it with a question. Who orchestrated all of this? We've already answered this. Who orchestrated all of this? We know God did this. Who's the hero of this story again? God is the hero of this story. Abraham believed by faith that God would provide. Abraham's servant gave God all the credit. Even Bethuel and Laban, perhaps against their will, had to give credit where credit was due. They had to, because the Lord is sovereign. He doesn't become that when we believe him to be so. The Lord is Sovereign. Everything is held together by his word. His providence encompasses the whole universe. He made the whole universe. Nothing he purposes to do will be thwarted. Ever. Ever. And Abraham and his servant have come to know this. To understand this. And I don't want to go too deep into this today, but, but realize the character arc, if you will, of God and of Abraham in this series through this portion of Genesis. Is there an arc of God's character development? No. He's always been the same, and he will forever be the same. He is immutable. He's unchanging. God has always been and always will be all-powerful, all-knowing, faithful, sovereign, and on and on we could go, right? And in the apprehension of that knowledge, in that reality... Abraham is the one who then had quite the change, quite the progression. And what we see in Abraham's life is that the more Abraham got himself out of the way of fixing everything and simply followed God's lead instead, everything God said he would do, he did. And he was going to do it anyways. Abraham was a little bit on the, along for the ride, right? But things were a lot more enjoyable when he was along for the ride. And God graciously revealed these things. 
And Abraham, like John the Baptist said, decreased. And God increased. And I say that meaning in their understanding. Right? God doesn't actually increase. He already is everything he is. And he always has been and he always will be. But boy, we sure have a lot to learn. And the bigger God gets in our mind's eye, the better it is. The better we can respond to him, the more our faith will grow. Today, we really have seen that faith on display. This change is rooted in a right understanding of the sovereignty and the goodness and the glory of God. Remember, God never got bigger, but Abraham saw him as so. Number two, it seems to be quite clear from this passage that waiting on the Lord does not necessarily mean to sit around doing nothing until God does something as if he's there to bail us out. Does that make sense? Waiting on the Lord does not mean do nothing. And I'm not saying God helps those who help themselves. That's not what I'm saying at all. I don't think that's a very biblical statement. Here's here's what we mean. Here's what we need to think about. Waiting on the Lord is not inaction. It is not the absence of action as much as it is the forfeit of control. The forfeit of responsibility for the results. Which gives us, think about that, gives us rest from our anxieties. Not rest, I got to sleep all day today. Rest from our anxieties, from those fears. Now, most times, we would all agree, uh, we don't get our answers as fast as the servant did today. Amen? But even in his running around, the servant's running around, he was waiting on the Lord. He was waiting on the Lord, busy with what he knew God wanted him to do. He was so excited to see what God was doing that he would rush to the next scene. Everyone seemed to be eager to see what God was doing in this passage. But even in Laban and their mother's attempt to change course, God was still in control, and what was supposed to happen, happened. And we have to be careful not to think that waiting means inaction. In reality, waiting for the Lord for us means continuing to do that which God has given us to do. Confident in his faithfulness, not in our schemes, not in our strategies, not in our powers and our abilities and our intellect, but confident in God's faithfulness to bring about the results, his promises. God's going to do his thing, and we need to do our thing. And what is that thing? That which he's given us to do what he's commanded us to do. He's sovereign. He is our Lord. We are his chosen vessels, his tools to bring about his ends. He's not our vessel. He isn't our tool to get the things that we want. So the servant in today's passage needed to wait on the Lord in that God was the one responsible to provide Isaac a wife. The servant simply was responsible to go, to ask, and to bring back the girl if she was ready to come back. That was his job, and he was in a hurry to get that job done. If God provided. We can be tempted, can't we? We can be tempted because of our own desire for resolution when things are just hanging out there. 
We want resolution to fix things that are uncomfortable, that aren't looking like the way that we want them in life. Enter Hagar and Ishmael and that mentality. Or, the other extreme, we can be tempted towards laziness. When there's things uh, God's word tells us to do, but we just sit back and say, God's got this. I'm just going to sit here and wait until God does this. Neither of those solutions are really biblical. And remember, our issue with designer promises. God did have to provide a wife for Isaac. A nation was going to come through him, and he said so. But that doesn't mean that God promised me a wife. I don't see that in Scripture. That God promised me children. That God promised me a sweet house or wealth or health. Okay, Isaac didn't get a wife today because he believed hard enough. Did you hear that? Isaac did not get a wife today because he believed and he had enough faith. Isaac got a wife today because God said it was time. That's why. It was God's will. It was God's promise. And this is another reminder of how important it is for us to be students of the word of God. We need to know what God's promises are so that we can eagerly expect them and be about his business with joy, not with anxiety. What has God decreed? What is God's will? We know everything that we need to know about God's will for our life right here. Everything we need to know. Want to know? I didn't say that. (laughs) Everything he knows we need to know is there. What are his promises? How can I honor him? How can I be pleasing to him while I wait upon the Lord and leave the results up to him? And church, doesn't this eliminate so much fear? I don't have to parent out of fear of how I'm going to mess up my children. I simply obey God. I parent to be pleasing to him. I don't have to pastor out of fear of what people will think of me. I I need to follow the Lord's instruction and seek to bring him glory. I don't have to make concessions to find a spouse out of fear of not finding one. I just have to walk with God, doing the things I know he has called me to do, knowing that even my desire to marry someone should be rooted in our ability, the husband and the wife, together as a couple to honor him together as a unit. Do I have those things in that priority? Because that's what God's word says. That's why I know that should be my uh, desire. That's why I know that should be God's will. And think about this even in marriage. And I think of that because of our context today. The Apostle Paul encouraged singleness. It's not a bad thing. It can be a fantastic thing. It's better to be single and following the Lord joyfully than to be married to someone who doesn't love the Lord and doesn't understand why you care so much about him. I don't have to fear that my friends and co-workers will dislike me if I share the gospel with them. I just have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I don't have to fear whether God will reject me if I'm not good enough. Amen? Christ came because I'm not good enough. God's word says that if I confess the crucified Jesus Christ as my Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will what? Be saved. Jesus has paid the price. He's paid it all. I don't have to fear 
because that was God's will. And I can be all eager about doing things for Jesus Christ while always in that waiting on the Lord because his promises are yet to come. Amen? Fear is a terrible motivator with terrible consequences in our souls, even in our physical health, the Bible says. Abraham knew this all too well. And praise God, we've gotten to see him change and grow by the grace of God through the book of Genesis. So may we, church, may we actively pursue the Lord, actively pursue the Lord as we wait upon him and look forward to his work and his will in our lives now and in eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for giving us the example of of Abraham, and not just him, but all those around him. God, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we praise you knowing that you are a sovereign God. You are the sovereign God. So God, I pray, may we rest in you. May we, may we wait upon you, knowing that nothing is going to slip past your attention. There, are, there will be no promises that you forget about. Everything that you've promised to do will be done exactly as you promised to do it and exactly when you intend to see it fulfilled. God, we thank you for the sufficiency of the word of God. Forgive us for when we don't think it's enough because we've made a new expectation of what you should be telling us. God, may we joyfully search the scriptures and know who you are and know what you're doing and know what you've promised. And God, may we joyfully, eagerly walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to your praise and to your glory. And may that result, Lord, in us growing in Christ-likeness. And may it result, Lord, in us proclaiming having the gospel of Jesus Christ on the tip of our tongues when we see people in need. And we pray all of this to the glory of your great name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.